Well, now we're going to have the floor. Anybody want to make any points, questions? Yes, we've got a roving mic, by the way. Just could you, could you say who you are, where you're from? It'd be useful for other people to know. Thanks. Bernard Stacey, I'm, I'm one of the um, clinical animals in the room, so probably quite rare, I think. Um, I just wanted to ask the panel, given that there are going to be lots of cuts coming up um, and that we're supposed to be a national health rather than a national illness service, we spend 4% of the budget on preventative care, should be more, Will it be less? Do you want to take a few more questions and then come back? Yes. Paul Moback from NHS Warwickshire. Your, your point about that Christensen makes in the, in the States around competition between integrated systems, I can see how that can work in a US model where there's competition between insurers, but how does, how's that going to work in a UK system when you don't have choice over your insurer or your local GP and therefore there's limited choice around... How you, how you choose between what services are available. And I think there's just one at, the, one at the back. Unless you were just stretching. Oh, you were. Hey, yeah. uh, Dr Steve Loud, GP. I'd like to ask the panel about polysystems and whether or not they will go ahead. Should we take those, those group of questions? Chris, do you want to say something about the, uh, the choice issue? Yeah, I mean, on the, on the prevention question, prevention, yes, of yeah. course. Um, but... I think the biggest opportunities, if we're going to take prevention public health seriously, lie outside the NHS, not in the NHS. Uh, it must involve NHS organisations working much more in partnership with local authorities, third sector organisation on the broader social economic determinants of health, rather than just putting a whole chunk of NHS resource into prevention, whatever that might look like. I mean, it's the agenda that Michael Marmot described in some detail in the recent uh, review of health inequalities and uh, many specific recommendations that the Marmot Commission came up with for tackling that because although the focus there was on health inequalities they're equally re relevant to the broader prevention uh, agenda. Uh, on Paul's question, I mean the way I've uh, thought about this and written about it in the past is that where would we start if we think the opportunities do lie around greater clinical integration and we don't want to have another big bang NHS reform programme, where are the current entry points that might help move us in the right direction? And I've always felt practice-based commissioning or budget holding in future is probably one of the most important starting points because actually, if you think about it, although we discuss it as a form of commissioning, Budget holding is a thin layer of commissioning overlaid on a strong system of primary care provision. It is uh, embryonically a form of clinical integration and enables practices to take those make-buy decisions which will be important in future in contributing to the efficiency challenge. The problem is that we've defined practice-based commissioning and budget holding as a game for primary care teams and I think we should be seeing if we can engage uh, secondary care uh, teams in that process along primary care teams alongside primary care teams but we're not going to have that element of choice getting to the nub of your question if we see budget holding as being um, locality focused where people living in a particular area have the option of being served by one budget holding unit 
what we need to do, I think, is encourage like-minded practices that cut across different localities to explore ways in which they'd want to be involved in budget holding and ways in which they can then engage their secondary care colleagues and, I would add, social care within that process as well. If you're able to achieve that, you have some degree of overlapping clinically integrated groupings, starting from a budget holding base, and that would enable you to offer people a degree of choice. It wouldn't work in rural Cumbria or rural Cornwall, uh, but it would have quite a good chance of working in many of our big conurbations and elsewhere too. Yeah, I think in terms of uh, prevention, we heard quite a lot pre-election from the Conservatives about ring-fencing public health. But it's, I think, less clear at the moment about what actually might happen with investment in prevention and how PCTs, especially if they have a reduced commissioning role, but an enhanced public health role together with local authorities, will actually fund perhaps some of those broader uh, prevention activities. Clearly, there's got to continue to be a huge role for the NHS in both primary and secondary f- prevention. There are, we heard with the NICE guidance on alcohol uh, last week, the sort of brief uh, intervention, the opportunistic advice, uh, counselling and so on, will continue to be really important. And we mustn't separate out, I think, too much public health from healthcare. I think that there is a danger in seeing separate pots of money. However, uh, we also know that the evidence of when these payoffs from investment in prevention occur mean that in a tighter financial environment, these are going to be uh, difficult investment decisions for local health communities to make. So um, I I suppose, uh, you know, some pessimism around it is is probably um, is, is probably right. The other uh, question uh, was around uh, polysystems, and I noticed you, I think, phrased it around polysystems rather than uh, the buildings, the GP-led health centres or or polyclinics. I think there is a real chance that further investment in new facilities in the community will have to be looked at very carefully. We already know that estate uh, utilisation across the NHS is, is poor. If you extend that to looking across the public sector as a whole, there are um, huge opportunities to be made for uh, better use of, uh, of already existing facilities. Whether they're fit for purposes is quite a different question. So I think in terms of, of further capital investment in primary care and uh, community services, I think that has got to be a, 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 a chance that, that's, that that won't happen. In terms of poly systems, given what uh, Chris was describing, I think there is a real chance that if clinical teams, whether they are predominantly primary care or do develop across primary community, social care and secondary care, there will be uh, a drive towards greater cooperation across federated practices. I think we're, we're seeing quite a lot of development of, of federated uh, GPs. So I think in that sense, if that's what polysystems are about, then actually we might not call them polysystems, but certainly local integrated clinical se- services. Uh, yes, let's hope so. I'll just add a point of emphasis, which I think is just you have to remember how spooked the Treasury is by sovereign debt crises in other parts of Europe. And therefore, what I'm hearing is that even if there are perverse effects, they want, they want, to, they want to reassure the markets by showing pain. Remember that politically they are working on a cycle of people feeling better about the government by around 2014-15. 
And I think, therefore, there is this dynamic tension between the need to throw things up in the air and do things differently with the resources and assets that we have, which clearly needs to happen, but to do that at the same time as making cuts in, you know, which are going to go down the traditional silos very, very rapidly, I think is going to be extraordinarily difficult. Hello, I'm George Smith. I'm an ophthalmologist, and I'd like to um, open a slightly different discussion, a slightly different slant. Uh, we are a very technologically driven subspecialty which involves um, expensive equipment uh, and there's a lot of patient choice that um, uh, is not often offered by the NHS. And I want to illustrate this by uh, an experience I had a couple of years ago when I was at a conference and there was a, um, a very well-known Australian ophthalmologist was giving us a, a lecture about um, some new intraocular lenses that he was uh, developing. And um, uh, he asked our experience of a certain type of lens as well, and we said, well, within the NHS, uh, tariff wouldn't pay for this kind of intraocular lens, and um, therefore the majority of our NHS patients wouldn't even get a chance to try it. Uh, of course, they could pay for it privately, but then they would have to pay for the whole thing themselves, which is very expensive, and only 9% of the population is, uh, is covered um, with uh, insurance. And, and he stood up and said, what a Bolshevik system you have here in this country. Patients aren't really given proper choice, as far as he could see. And, and I, I see this all the time when I go to international conferences. We find that we are falling further and further behind when it comes to technological advancements and things that we can offer our patients. And it seems to me that a very sensible thing to do would be to actually open up the debate about um, co-payments, uh, uh, bolstering the private sector through incentives uh, for uh, insurance, etc., Etc. Instead of just this uh, kind of head-in-the-sand attitude that uh, NHS is a wonderful British institution that we must protect it at all costs, and it has to be free at the point of delivery always, I think the time has come when we really need to start opening up these debates. And uh, we are the only country in the world, basically, as far as I can see, that has such a system like this without co-payment. Even the communist countries like Russia and China pay for their health care. So um, I think the time has come where we should open up this debate and start um, talking about other ways of, of funding healthcare. Andrew McKechnie from PricewaterhouseCoopers. Just picking up on that point more broadly, how does the panel think that tariff needs to develop, given that under current HRG structure it rewards activity and volume? Um, and Anna, are there any lessons that we can learn from other countries in this regard? Uh, hello, I'm Sarah Cordy from the Care Quality Commission. In the coalition paper, the government said it wanted to break down barriers between health and social care. Um, and in your, in you as well said, Chris, um, it's all about local systems working together. But at the same time, the, gov the government have abolished comprehensive area assessments and a lot of other things that they're doing are reducing incentives to work in partnership. How do you think organisations can, can continue to work together? Anna, do you want to say something about the sort of top-ups, co-payments yeah. issue? Yeah. Certainly one of the reasons why in international comparisons when asking questions about uh, access to care, did you face any financial barriers to fulfilling a prescription, have you ever not attended or taken recommended care due to money, we perform extremely well and that is because we have few financial barriers at point of access. Now putting those within the publicly funded NHS I think does throw up some quite um, difficult questions. But I think what you were suggesting was more a mix and match where there would be some things which are not deemed by NICE or whoever to be cost effective to make available to the whole population. But 
the ability of individuals who have the money and can afford to do so to top up as it were pay for those elements of care and to then still receive care and that was very much what Mike Richards looked at in his review and some efforts uh, and changes following that review have been made to try and minimise the occasions on which that is necessary. However, I do think for that to work, we would have to go down the route as other countries have in being much more explicit about what is funded on the NHS. Obviously, uh, at the margins, NICE makes rulings on uh, new technologies, but for the majority of care, there's a quite a lot of discretion which is left to uh, local either clinical practice or PCT decision-making about what is and what isn't funded. And I think, given what Ben said about the, the, what the public feel about the National Health Service and not wanting variation, that also points to being more explicit. If we're more explicit, then it means that people are clear, if I want this, I have to pay for it, or I can insure against that risk but we have to recognize that the things that are not in will be only available to those who can pay for them but uh, we, we certainly I uh, expect we will have that debate uh, briefly on tariff uh, in terms of other countries activity-based payment is very common uh, countries moved to it for a number of reasons some who had fee-for-service moved to it because they didn't want to continue to pay for itemized care and it was a way of uh, reducing risk to the payer and putting more risk on the provider other countries had per diem payments which meant long lengths of stay again wanted an incentive for people to have short lengths of stay uh, and get people out uh, here we moved to it because we wanted more activity because uh, the system of, of, of budgets meant that uh, we, in some areas we wanted more activity. So we've sort of got what we asked for. We have ended up with more activity. But in the environment that we're moving into, and given some of the things that uh, we talked about with uh, a lot of hospital activity being either inappropriate or uh, perhaps not uh, the best place for patients to be treated, we absolutely don't want to be rewarding activity in the acute sector. So I think what we've got to move towards, and other countries are looking at this, is for creating um, either risk-adjusted capitations for groups of populations or finding ways of uh, giving the greater risk to either a single provider who takes responsibility, uh, the so-called accountable uh, care organisations, or a group of organisations, perhaps some of these clinically integrated systems, who take the money and say in return for that, we'll manage the risk and give you the outcome. So I do think we will need to see uh, quite a radical change in some of the payment mechanisms and the contracts that go along with that, which will have to start and share risk and reward in a very different way from the current uh, contracts. Ben, could you add anything on the impact of HRG 4.5 and the tariff? No, sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> well, I, I was think thinking... The public, well, the public, you, know, <laughs> I think you do need to move to something based on outcomes and possibly even what people think, but um, we need to be careful about that because you could easily, if you want to make people happy, you wouldn't need to worry too much about things like mortality rates because... There's no, no relationship between how happy those are who live long enough to fill in the questionnaires and how likely the hospital <laughs> overall is to kill people. I think, but on the, on the co-payment and being explicit about what the NHS provides, I think that is the debate that we need to have and probably uh, now is the time or next year is the time to have it. I just think that politically, you know, the Conservatives have made the decision not to have it and it will, get, it will become less and less, you know, convenient politically to have that debate with the cycles that we operate in. And that, I, I, so I don't, I don't see how they're going to have that. They've, they've been very, very careful, not, you know, to actually no configure, no reconfigurations, 
all of this stuff, um, uh, actually avoiding con- confronting people with the evidence or the detailed evidence on, on the state of choice and uh, the, the choices that are going to have to be made about healthcare. So that is, gonna, I think, it's going to be a huge challenge. Do you think they also they, they see your polls, for example? And then one of the things you emphasised was the um, the overwhelming feeling on the part of the public that they wanted some idea of fairness in healthcare, and so that you know, uh, how does that square with you know imposing a charge? Essentially, that's what you're doing. Well, that that is that yeah. is the problem. I mean, of course, life isn't fair, but that you know, it's, it's when you start to make it explicit, and then they'll show that some people have lived and some have died. Because now the fact is that rich people live longer anyway. We don't, but we we sort of manage to avoid that in Britain. It's an outrage think about it in abstract terms but no one in Britain actually you know it's outrageous that people in some parts of Glasgow might live you know 30 years longer than some very small wards you know, there's you know it's huge differences that's outrageous if you confront the British public that if you then say well actually to fix that it might cost this much in taxation we'll say well no thank you and uh, but it's but we don't have that conversation Chris shall I pick up the partnership yeah. question because yeah. I think it'll be a test of the coalition in the sense of the Lib Dems during the election campaign were very positive about more integrated forms of working, greater partnership between health and local government. So given what you've said about how things have evolved more recently, um, I think it's an open question as to whose views on that will, will prevail. The second point to make about that is that clearly social care funding is going to be under even greater pressure over the next few years than healthcare funding and will have obvious implications for the NHS in delivering its targets unless there's a way of health and social care talking together about how they're going to, to cope with that. So I think that reinforces uh, a lot of these arguments. I'd also say, although it's a variable picture across the country, I've come across an increasing number of examples of where at a local systems level... This is what I wanted to say, actually. That it's actually happening without, without yes. CAA. Yeah. So you can see it's emerging across the country. Yeah, yeah. Grad, exactly. But it's not fast enough, and, you know, but, but it is emerging. And I think because people out there grappling with these issues know it's the right thing to do, regardless of what is coming out of Whitehall. So, great. Quick response, do you want to that? Yeah, um, I, I see personally that one of the main problems that we have with making change in healthcare in this country is the uh, public perception. And, and I think it's due to poor education and the public's point that they're not educated in, in healthcare matters. They don't know what it's like in other countries. And I think one step forward would, would be actually some sort of policy of education which would enable the public to actually see what it could be if things were maybe slightly differently because... I think the general public's idea is you either have a system like the NHS where everything is provided for everybody from cradle to grave, like the sort of post-war um, idealism. They think the alternative is NHS uh, is, is in the US, where if somebody falls down on the street, then the first thing they do is go through their pockets to see if they're going to pay for it, which is wrong anyway. But there still seems to be this kind of uh, dual idealism, and they course prefer the nice kind NHS system to something that's rather nasty like what they perceive the US but in fact there's so much in between that they need educated about and also they don't really know what what is a good product and what isn't because they're they're not uh, exposed to it I mean they still think whatever you say doctor they'll not come to you and say look I want one of these new fancy multifocal intraocular lenses because I know that it uh, uh, gives you a good result and you can see in all sorts of different directions uh, and they, if they knew these are the things that were available, then they wouldn't uh, have the same attitude that they do currently. Of course, the French and German governments are very worried indeed about how much they're spending on health care, yep. and they're trying to do their best to rein, in, rein that money back in. So I think there was one over there, yeah? Um, Peter Mumford, EPI Associates. 
sort of picks up on this point because a striking absence of talk about demand management in your conversation. We're picking it up now a bit. Interested any other evidence from elsewhere or things that you're hearing around in government of, uh, that have possibilities for um, strengthening that element of um, restricting uh, uptake and use of the NHS? Glad you actually got around the euphemism there. I almost thought demand management was a bit euphemistic. It's really, yeah. <laughs> so there was over here. Uh, Judy Hillier. I'm uh, Director of Clinical Excellence and Delivery for Solent Healthcare, which is a community and mental health organisation still within a PCT. Um, it's a few, uh, probably not for long. Um, my question is slightly different. With the Federated Empowered Primary Care Commissioning um, initiatives, they'll need support to gain the right competences. Now, commissioners are seen as, um, and this isn't everywhere, I know, but as seen as probably not going in the right direction. World-class commissioning has, hasn't really achieved what it needs to achieve. How do the panel anticipate primary care will be able to gain the capacity and capability in the time to make a difference? Because it takes about two years from the beginning of an initiative to make a change actually impact out into the community and not become, in effect, um, the sort of primary care group, the PCG of the past, which was both commissioning and provision and therefore could become quite parochial. Thanks. Uh, Jeremy Gostick of the National Audit Office. Uh, I've got a related point to that, which is that, uh, as, as Ben's presentation showed, We've got an incoming government whose members think the NHS is riddled with bureaucracy uh, and that there's a commitment to reduce management costs by a third. But at the same time, it seems that we're moving to a kind of GP-led commissioning model, which the 1990s tells us will lead to a natural increase in costs. And so I'm sort of wondering how that's going to work. <laughs> so what, what, are you pointing out some uh, inconsistency in political thinking? <laughs> Outrageous. <laughs> um, Perhaps you could take, take those, Chris. What about around the, the issue mm. about, uh, I hate to use this phrase again, demand management. It's like calling uh, cuts. I like fiscal, fiscal consolidation. Yeah. I think <laughs> well, I think that in my mind, the question that Peter raised and these questions um, are very closely linked because clearly one route into demand management is through budget holding and groups of clinicians, secondary primary care, taking on that responsibility and having the incentives within it, if they have the appropriate resources for management support, to be able to manage demand more effectively. I mean, it kind of flies a bit in the face of the other question about how do we increase the choices and give quicker access to some of these innovative and more expensive services, but let's sort of leave that on the table for the moment. Um, so I think budget holding, because uh, that seems to be one of the flagship policies of the coalition government, is going to be a very important part of the, uh, the landscape going forward. Will it be any more effective than practice-based commissioning in really engaging frontline staff? Will there be the resources available to budget holders to have the information they need to manage their budgets to extract the benefits? If you look at the historical um, evidence, I mean, people in the past compared the uh, management resource available to medical groups in the states which were analogous to budget holders and found that they had a huge amount more to spend on people with the analytical skills the medical clinical expertise they need to be able to do that job effectively it's not at all clear to me that will be the case with budget holding nor is it the case nor is it clear that the incentives will be any more powerful to encourage 
a critical mass of GPs going beyond the 10% of those who will always be interested to put their hands up and say, yeah, we really want to do this to manage demand, to look at variations in admissions from ambulatory care sensitive conditions to look at how we can work more closely with our clinical colleagues in secondary care to deliver what's needed. Now, I hope I'm wrong. Because as I was saying in my presentation, I do think that things like service line management and budget holding through frontline staff controlling budgets and making those key decisions has to be at the heart of what happens next. But there are so many contradictory signs, I think uh, some degree of caution until we see the detail behind the policy is necessary. Yeah, hello, I'm David Pascal, the Royal Free, Hampstead Trust. Actually, just as an aside, all this business about the coalition government I can't see that the Liberal Democrats' influence on health will last more than five minutes. I've um, worked a long time in Germany. The FDP never really has a say in government. So I think we're back to mainstream conservative policy and shouldn't delude ourselves. Mm. Actually, what I wanted to relate to was this, this question of now who decides. I mean, I saw Andrew Lansley talk in Hampstead and railed against uh, the bureaucracy I mean, it was in the context of shutting the A&Es at uh, Whittington. Now, I sit on the board of the Royal Free, and we spent God knows how long talking about that. It's still very unclear to me who makes that sort of decision. Now, did he mean that the SHA is going to be swept away, which I think is in the coalition statement? Does that mean more power comes down to people like me sitting on the board of a trust? Or does it mean more power, which I've heard them say, but we as a trust board couldn't quite see how it was going to work? It goes down to the GPs who make the sort of decisions. But how are they going to be in a position to make the decisions about should we close the Whittington A&E or shouldn't we? And should we merge with the... Uh, UCL and all the rest of these debates, which we as boards are wrestling with. We, are, we have all this other lot around us. The coalition document's not very clear, except it sort of talks about get rid of bureaucracy, etc., etc. I thought all those decisions were for Robert Naylor to take, aren't they? Uh, Laurie McMahon uh, from Loop 2, and I'm a, an associate here at the Fund. I'd like to ask the panel whether they think that uh, for those people seriously engaged in achieving system-wide quip so to speak, life would have been easier had not the coalition put out, extinguished the burning platform of fi the financial burning platform by promising year-on-year -year increases. It seems to have sensitised the public and a lot of staff that actually change needn't happen. And also, I suppose, whether or not you think, as the famine gets worse, whether you think the coalition will, how long the coalition will be able to stick with uh, those promises. Yes. Um, sorry, there's uh, sort of I had some thoughts on the earlier one, which I probably won't go back to now. But um, on this point about who decides, I think that was the issue when I was talking about accountability. I think there are multiple levels of accountability, and people feel accountable in different directions. You take a foundation trust, for example, have the accountability sort of to membership, to public staff, and patients, uh, and the governors with monitor a very uh, strong quite central performance management if FTs are not uh, are not up to scratch still having to be accountable to the care quality commission so i think uh, uh, when we come to then who decides about service changes particularly when these services have to be changed across quite uh, on quite a large scale i think local decisions about reconfiguring or downgrading um, uh, you know an A&E service in a in a DGH or deciding which stroke, which hospitals would deliver tertiary stroke services across London. They're going to be different decisions on different scales, but 
I don't think in either of those examples we can expect the consortia of general practices, which will emerge at least in the next year or two, to be in a position to be leading that sort of strategic uh, decision-making on reconfiguration. So if there aren't the SHAs in place, it is very unclear uh, how these decisions are going to be taken. Throw into that the rhetoric of these need to be clinically led decisions. The idea that your emergency docs who are staffing the Whittington A&E are going to be the ones to make the decision to close it suggests to me you know, no, no service change uh, at all. However, CQC can uh, have very strong powers to, to de-license, de I can't remember what the exact word is, uh, suspend services uh, on quality and safety grounds. So we may see some that some of those very strong decisions by a regulator in future precipitating uh, ongoing and, and, and longer-term service changes. So I think it's really, really unclear, and obviously the independent reconfiguration panel still existing, so that is difficult. On Laurie's point, I think probably Ben better to pick this up, but uh, I hope that within the NHS that the idea that NHS spending is protected, that people understand that there will still be very little money around. I think in terms of the public, it is much more worrying, uh, particularly given the, the sort of data that, that Ben was showing about what their current perceptions are. I think the rhetoric about we're protecting the NHS, we're protecting uh, frontline services, this can all be done through slashing bureaucracy. It is, is going to make things very difficult for the local NHS. You know, they've done a selling job to get elected and now they're, now they're, you know, now they're going to have to try and run things. The only thing I, I think the only thing uh, it, that, that's in the government's favour is that you need to be careful with, with, you know, with opinion polls. I remember um, working for Nicholas Ridley in the 1980s, and we were doing stuff about selling off the water industry, which at the time was deeply unpopular. We put up a slide saying 90% were opposed to it, and of course today less than 1% of people are worried about that, and uh, that wasn't the reason that the Conservatives ran into trouble in the early 1990s. Uh, people forgot about you know Ridley sat there. St- with a fag because this was you know 19, this is 1989 and he puts out his fag and he goes don't worry they'll forget about it next year now in the case of the NHS they will not forget about it next year but I think it's interesting that what's going on in social care at the moment in a sense is some, some of the things that you've already had and I've, I've been waiting with all of my clients in local government and, and screams of pain and horror as they have to you know ration and ration and ration the social care budget what we aren't seeing in terms of public opinion and you can react to this however you like is rising concern about social care. We are just not seeing it. Now, so either um, there are loads of older people suffering in silence, which is possible, although we should be able to pick that up in terms of what we do in in opinion polling, um, or somehow society is more flexible uh, in terms of absorbing some of that stuff, or what they, you know, and so I think it's not quite as, you know, in terms of demand management, there are there probably are things that you can do subtly. If you go out and say very visible things like prescription charges, big problems, but there, there is perhaps a bit more flexibility than the headline figures might suggest. But it is going to take a real a real nuanced uh, approach, and they haven't set themselves up for this at all well. I think there's some cost shifting going on too, by the way, between social care and health oh, care. Oh, so it's going, okay, uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, if you look at the uh, size of the continuing right. care bills right. flowing in the direction of the NHS and mm. the recent past, it can't yeah, be unrelated. somewhere, it comes out. Yeah, it? but I think on, on Laurie's core question, mm. I, I don't think uh, in the NHS uh, people are feeling relaxed about, well, we've got real terms increases, so it's going to be okay. I think David Nicholson deserves a lot of credit because even though the politicians were tre- trying to keep the cap on that, 
discussion, he said quite clearly, what, nine, 12 months ago, it's going to be 15 to 20 billion pounds. We need to start planning now. And there's no NHS organisation I've had contact with in that period of time that hasn't been taking that seriously and doing all the planning. So there may be a gap between what's happening in the NHS and the public understanding of that. But I think the plans are pretty well advanced in many places. Thank you very much, everybody here. Thank you.